0: diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. This week on the show, we're covering a record label, which was really, really inspirational to me when I was starting my own label, Hot Flush. As we talk about in the conversation, it's now completely unambiguously a drum and bass label. But in the early years of hospital records, they covered quite a wide variety of genres and as I mentioned in the show today, it was their kind of broken beat, jazzy breaks, kind of garagey crossover stuff which really piqued my interest but also the fact that they were a multi-genre label in of itself. And that was a super inspirational thing for me in terms of like mapping out what I wanted to do with Hot Flush at the start and kind of what we've done over the years. And actually it's quite funny because Chris Goss, our guest today, who's one of the founders of Hospital, says during the conversation that they made a they made a very specific decision to focus heavily on drum base or focus exclusively actually on drum base for business reasons and it really served them well. And we never did that with Hot Flush and I have to say it probably hasn't served us well financially over the years. But that's all good. Because the story of Hospital Records is just really, really interesting in of itself. So it's great to have Chris on the show this week. As I mentioned, super inspirational to me personally. And he's a really interesting guy. And we talk about lots of different things, obviously to do with Hospital, the label, but also their live events, which have become a huge thing. And just the history of the German base and German base kind of adjacent scenes over the periods that they've been running started in 96 so it's a bit of a different take to other sides of this kind of uk music that we've had previously on the show but that's what we're all about here so um yeah really excited to get into it just before we do leave us a review or a rating really helps wherever you're listening to this podcast hit the five star button Join us from the Discord if you want to chat about anything at all. I'm still waiting for more suggestions for our forthcoming subscription offering, which I'm 99% sure now is going to be on Patreon. Going to be launching that fairly soon. So if you've got any suggestions about what you would want from that sort of subscription, extra stuff to the podcast, I mean, then hit us up in the Discord, hotflushrecording.com Discord. And follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes. I'll be back after the main conversation to talk releases and stuff. But without further delay, here is Chris Goss. Chris Goss, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm all right.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, it's very, very hot and sunny, which seems very strange when you're a Londoner talking about weather like that. But uh, (laughs) yeah, it makes a welcome change. Uh, Although... We are lucky in our building here. We ha- we do have aircon, but um, the meeting rooms are all a bit hot and sweaty. So, uh, uh, but yeah, nice problems to navigate for once.
0: Yeah, yeah, those, those are good problems. So, I just wanted to kick off. I mean, there's a few things I want to, a few areas that I want to cover during this. Obviously, Hospital is is a record label, but you've got a really big. Uh, like live events side to what you guys do, yeah. So um, and then there's obviously your, also your music making that kind of stuff, which I do want to touch on as well. So there's like there's, there's a whole whole bunch of stuff to get through. But um, I just wanted to kick off by by asking you, in your opinion, like is the live side of the music industry like as fucked as everyone says it is? Like, what's what's your take on the current situation?
1: Um, I mean, let's let's try and remain optimistic. Um, currently. July 22. Yeah, the, the live sector right now is very, very challenging. Um, like you and I both know, and a lot of the people that we, you know, our friends in this business have seen, you know, the absolute, you know, the, the madness of lockdown, everything falling off a cliff and just disappearing. And then we gradually started to emerge sort of July, August of last year and there was like a mad dash for like everything all at once which in itself was was a bit of a problem but everyone was so delighted to be out of lockdown that we had a sort of a we had a good autumn last year then winter got super wobbly uh personally we were very lucky that we had we had a, a new year's eve party at drum sheds um which we only knew could actually go ahead four days before the show. But thankfully, um, you know, blessed with great promoters and fantastic fans, you know, that was sold out. So we had 10,000 people out on New Year's Eve in North London. And then, you know, we got into the early part of this year. And again, you know, things started to dip again. And I think... I think maybe what's happening right now is that as we enter summer season, we enter festival season, we, we're realising just just how tough things are because on the one hand, there's too much content. There's far too many shows out there, you know, um, a lot of which is the legacy of coming out of lockdown where, you know, every sort of have-a-go promoter just jumped into into the live sector and started putting on parties and shows and you name it. So there's far too much content. We obviously are in the midst of a cost-of-living crisis, so uh, there's nowhere near uh, as much money to go around. And for those of us that work in drum and bass, you know, with probably the, the youngest of all dance music audiences, uh, you know, our young fans don't just... They just don't have the money that they used to. Um, we're still we're still tr- struggling with COVID, so I think there's other people that still have some, some trepidation about COVID. Um, uh, and there are people that are ill, um so and you know just throw into throw into the mix a little bit of brexit um and you know i guess you've just got a perfect storm and it's um it it's it's it it's pretty distressing in in many respects for those of us as promoters you know labels um artists and lovers of music you know it it i've i've never seen anything like this, and it does call for a very very steady nerve and it's a little bit like just you know just people keep saying to me don't blink you'll be all right don't blink (laughs) (laughs) but it's easier said than done right you know when um particularly you know as as you know we do a lot we do a lot of shows we do some very big shows um and yeah it's it's a real test it's a real test of nerve and confidence um And as directors, you know, and owners of this company, just needing to make good decisions. you just got to make good decisions. It's it's all very well, wanting to throw great parties and wanting to have amazing events and lots of fantastic content. But this is a business, you know, it's a 26-year-old business and I've got responsibilities. We've got mouths to feed. We've got careers to, to sustain um so i just you know i really really hope that the rest of this summer going into the autumn is going to be all right and that really we can maybe try and focus on next year as more of a genuinely positive uplift because because the industry needs
0: it sure so um like anecdotally what i'd heard from from other people other promoters and other people involved was that you know coming out of lockdown there was a big kind of frenzy a sort of ticket buying frenzy That's right. Um, it, so okay, right, and 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 then that kind of subsided in, into the kind of difficult environment that you just described. Like, do you have any insight as to why there was that? I mean, I'm, it's it's pretty obvious why there was a big frenzy at the start, right? Because there was this huge pent-up demand who had been sitting inside for you know a, a, however long. But do have you do you have any insight other than like, I mean, you just described the um, you know the cost of living uh, issue which has kind of crept up on us, I guess, and now is suddenly, you know, really here. But, I mean, do, are there any other kind of, you know, things that you could point to, do you think, like to, to describe that kind of quite steep drop-off?
1: Well, you know, uh, you know it, we're, that, 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 that kind of frenzy of promoting re- really sort of kicked off in end of February last year when, uh, you know, our glorious leader announced his exit strategy from COVID. And literally, everyone kind of went. Oh, yeah, great! I, I'll promote. I've always wanted to be a promoter, and there was definitely a period in in the early spring of last year when, as a promoter, you could sell tickets to anything. Now, that's you know, that's that that's theoretically a great position to be in. Except when you finally get to the shows happening, uh, most people would recognise that suddenly there was an enormous drop off in ticket holders. Now, why was that? On the one hand, because there was so much choice and plenty of people, and I'll, count, I'll hold my hand up. I mean, I, I was buying tickets. I was buying tickets for some things just because I wanted to support. No, sorry, made...
0: so let, me, let me just interrupt you there. Um, when you say drop-off, do you mean people not turning up to shows that they held tickets for?
1: Exactly, so ticket holders not showing up.
0: Yep.
1: Which, you know, in the numbers that we saw last late summer into autumn was fairly um, shattering because you've just never seen anything like it before. So for a lot of the really big shows, you know, you could count on 20 to 30 or even 35-plus percent of ticket holders not showing up. Now, if you're putting on an event for 6,000, 15,000 people, that's the difference between, you know, being profitable and being in some significant debt. Because, you know, on those huge shows, it's the combination that it's not just the ticket money, as, as some people may naturally think. It's the whole ecosystem of the show, and often it's actually come, comes into actually what what people spend at the bar because that's often where the promoters really make their money because the sheer level of investment in these shows is so high. So you know you had that you know second half of last year, big drop off in numbers, way too many shows, and then you end up, and then you also end up sort of being into in, in this rather strange scenario where then people are going to shows kind of going well why, why, why isn't it full you know the promoter said it was sold out and then you get you know you get a lack of confidence in the actual marketplace and that, and we're seeing that again this year where um, on the one hand you know in this in this desperate rush to sort of deliver successful shows you might have sort of people saying well I don't even know if I believe the promoter anymore because I went to their show last time and they closed the stage and it was only half full or whatever it might be um, <clears throat> and so these kind of these factors, and of course, I mean, we all know in this country what this cost of living crisis is like. Because with everyone's fuel bills, you know, trebling or quadrupling or whatever that might mean, and and the knock-on effect into people's livelihoods, um, there's just clearly far less sort of disposable cash. And as a result, then I think it's natural that for some people that would go out, that they're, they're not going to the regular club shows, or they're not going to as many gigs as they would do. They might say. I'm just going to spend it all at Glastonbury. I'm just going to spend it all on one big dance music holiday. You know those those kind of decisions. Um and then of course you know where where events could be struggling and they and uh what's been sold, you know, let's say, you know, is is a six stage event which ends up being like a one stage event. You know, because of a lack of ticket sales or whatever it might be. You know, if you, if if you've if you've gone to an event like that and actually you've got, let's say, a third of what you thought you'd bought your ticket for, then obviously then you know your your confidence in the marketplace just disappears, and that's not that's not exclusive to a particular genre. That's just that's probably just maybe specific to dance music. Um, And maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe certain cities are a bit more reliable in terms of, like, consistent numbers and delivering great shows. You know, I mean, Bristol is an amazing city for dance music. It's a fantastic, you know, city for drum and bass and jungle music, obviously, because of its roots. Um, But maybe other cities, you know, and I include London in this, you know, and I'm a Londoner, you know, like... Shows across London, they're a bit unpredictable, depending on where you're going, what the venue is, who the promoter is, what time of year it is, what the weather's like, etc., etc. So it's, yeah, it um you know, I wish I could try and find a positive spin to put on it, but <laughs> at, at this time, at this time, it's just try and sit tight and don't panic, but which just sounds a bit dad's army, but that's kind of how it feels right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to go about something that you mentioned, Never Stop, when you said that, Drum and bass has got the youngest audience, but actually, when I think about it, is is kind of not at all surprising. But it, it kind of jumped out at me when you said it. So, do you think you do you think you guys and sort of um you know the drum and bass scene generally is more exposed to the kind of cost of living stuff than perhaps I don't know. Uh, the kind of maybe the tenor house, yeah. I was, was going to. Mm. There were a couple of uh, names I was going to pluck up, but maybe I won't. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there are de- there are definitely somewhere who are you can. It's, it's very noticeable that, that the average age is like near, nearer to thirty, and I guess in the drawing basin, it's nearer to eighteen, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean, although although you know um, you know we are we are blessed with a fairly sort of broad cross-section of people that come to drone boat shows or particularly that come to hospitality shows but absolutely like you know that that the, the initial kind of core market is you know is like 18 to 22 and then you know you have you have the people in their 30s who are real die-hard fans and then you also have people in their 40s and 50s god love them i mean i'm 53 right but that that, that initial kind of core uh market is you know it's it, it's almost like it's like a sort of natural it's like an evolution of man or an evolution of man and woman you know it's like you know you come through school you you hit sixth form and when you're waiting to turn 18 you kind of find out that one of the most exciting forms of music is drum and bass and the minute you get an opportunity you just go you go to college you leave school and that it's just that initial rush of high energy music people don't mooch around drinking expensive drinks they take the t-shirts off and they go to the front and they rave, <laughs> and it's that it's exciting you know like and when so it but the, the reverse being that you know we i think drum and bass is, is is blessed with some of the most excitable and energetic fans but of course yes because they are the youngest they don't, they don't have the money to throw around on their lifestyle, or even on their on, all the kind of parties that they want to go to, and, and and similarly, it also impacts the promoters when you're trying to work out what's the ticket price, because you can't just price yourself out of the market. Even though, uh, even though coming at the pandemic, you know, uh, people want to double their fees, whether it's the DJs or the suppliers or the security teams. You know, it's like <laughs> it's a bit of a nightmare in, in, in some respects, but but you know, uh, at the same time, you know, drone based fans, I. I I tend to say it's a bit like the Borg in Star Trek,
0: you know, like they they, they just self-generate. Well that that was gonna that was gonna be my question, right? <laughs> because I'm um, talking to uh, like Debridge about the um, seeming sort of endless capacity of drum and bass to kind of reinvent itself and just like you know keep going mm. in a way that some other like UK sort of you know hardcore adjacent we say scenes have been have struggled to do in the same way. So have you do you guys like have a like do you have a strategy for like you know cuz if like say as as you said like 18 to 22 is, is the core but that means there's a there's a pretty quick turnover of people so do you do you have a strategy for keeping that going or, does, or do you find it's something just that just kind of happens of its own accord yeah i mean <laughs>
1: I mean, it's a good question. Do we have a strategy for it? Not that I'm aware. Right. <laughs> Maybe we should. <laughs> Maybe I better run upstairs and go, right, we need a strategy for holding on to
0: the 23-year-olds. Um, I'm more I'm mean, mean getting the 18-year-olds in. Like, I mean, obviously, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another one at the other end for obviously for keeping hold of them. But like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what
1: I meant. I guess, I guess to be honest, Paul, like, you know, like, it, it, I don't think we ever really seem to have a problem with like the 18-year-olds or the, frankly the 16-year-olds being excited by it and arriving because that, that, that is one of the most natural things that happens, I think. It's just that, I mean, you know, the amount of people that I've, you know, I've been working in the music industry for probably 30 years, and, like, the amount of people that I still meet that, whenever they talk to me about that, they're like, oh, yeah, I used to love, it's like, I used to love drum and bass. And I'm like, oh, you used to, okay. <laughs> so when did you used to love it? Well, when I was at uni. You know, there's that standard kind of response of like, oh, well, you know, like, I went to Leicester and I was, like, raving to SS, and I like, was it was amazing, and I saw Danny Booken, blah, blah, blah. It's, Typical standard story and it's great that I had nothing wrong with that but there's almost like that kind of like as though somehow there's a natural arc that you you, you really rave for the three years that you're at college if you go to college and then maybe as soon as you leave college a, a, apparently you grow up and ma- maybe you start listening to techno because that, that that's what mature people do I don't know and I, <laughs> I, I do actually have friends in techno honestly but but there is that sort of like process of like you know it's it, it's like the rite of passage. It's like the classic rite of passage from sort of your mid to late teens into your early twenties. But then there are there's there's obviously plenty of people who spend their entire twenties into their thirties being deeply involved in the jungle drone bass scene because they love it. it. Just it just speaks to them, you know. That, and they whether they have a day job doing something completely different or whether they're vaguely involved in the music, but just because it speaks to them. Um, but the I think, in a way, maybe, just to think that's your question, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a bit naive to think that we should, we can or should have a strategy for it because you just, you just, you, things run their course. And I think the most important thing from our perspective is that I'd like to think that as a record label and as a promoter and as an event, we just do our very best to make sure that we are accessible, uh, that we can continue to strive to be uh, inclusive so that you know this is these this is music and events for anyone and everyone and it and it's and it's not defined by age and it shouldn't be defined by race or sexuality or disability you know that actually this is just it's fun it's meant to be fun and there are plenty of people for them. they absolutely get that and you see them every, you know and I'm lucky that I see a lot of certain faces regularly at some of the festivals you know that have just been coming for years um so but I don't know maybe having said that one you know when we finish talking I'll um I'll, I'll put a message on slack and say we need to have a strategy for retain <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: I can take some credit for that <laughs> <laughs> um, okay well listen um right so stepping back a little bit um, for the people who listen to this who like on familiar with the kind of minutiae of what you guys do at hospital can you just give us a kind of top-down view of where the company is now and how it's sort of split up into the various different bits that you sure. do
1: um yeah so i mean so we started in 96 so this is you know we're, we're into our um end of our 26th year in business we're now um we're fully independent and we have our own building on a small industrial estate just south of brixton um, and then so within this building where I'm sat chatting to you we are thoroughly self-sufficient so in here we have a small uh, recording studio there's a warehouse for all of our webshop and all of our D2C um, work and then upstairs open plan office couple of meeting rooms we've got a dedicated streaming room for mainly for podcasts and DJ mixes uh, and other kind of creative content that we record for the things that we do and um, and yeah, you know, like we are, I guess we are just fully sort of self-sufficient in terms of the, in terms of the activities of the company, if I try and get this right, I guess, you know, on the label side, you know, we have, uh, we have the A&R team, um, which supports our um, signed roster of, I think, currently 24 artists. So there's like the A&R team, there's the label team, which is lab- label manager, um, two people working promo and marketing We've got someone that heads up our publishing department who also keys into the A&R team. We've got a finance team. There's the business affairs team, um, the guys that run the webshop and warehouse, uh, two guys doing video, um, HR, um, and then, of course, all of the events. So there's like the events management, uh, events promo, marketing. I think that sounds about it. Is that right?
0: So how how much of... um... Like, what 's the split roughly between live events and and the and the record label for you, for you guys in terms
1: of people or in terms of income or
0: well I mean yeah because it 's not yeah it doesn 't necessarily correlate to that, does it I mean like in terms of your yeah I mean how you view the business generally from a kind of top down sort of um,
1: I mean like in terms of like you know that the overall sort of um, pie uh, of income, thankfully music sales as we refer to it but by which i mean music sales being streaming physical sales download sales that that still is by far the biggest revenue stream for the company second most significant revenue revenue stream is events although having just been through what we've been through and what we're still getting back to that's obviously been turned upside down to an extent
0: um so, so sorry let me let me let me interrupt you there. so pre-pandemic that was also the case that's right pre-pandemic so like
1: 2019 was you know the best year that we'd ever had in our events business and then of course 2020 the single worst we've ever seen on record and i hope to see it again <laughs> right. um so yeah so i mean you know in, in a relatively um stable landscape events would usually run a second in terms of our our, our, our overall company income and then you kind of then break down the rest into things like publishing and and sync and um, d2c which is our direct to consumer like director fan um sales from the from the web shop. um yeah, and, 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 and many other sort of bits and pieces as well as like things like merchandise and um,
0: so do you treat direct sales as separate then from that uh, the main recorded sales
1: um,
0: no we don't
1: like we like we we will incorporate that in there because they are you know they are overall sales for us. I guess the one thing, you know, through our through our web shop because it's relatively broad, um, you know, you can have people that might um, you know, Go the website and they want to. They want to buy a double vinyl album, and they might also purchase some downloads, and they might buy some oven gloves and a pair of swimming shorts.
0: Do you actually do oven gloves?
1: Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> really nice. <actually.
0: laughs> nice. It's like, like the thing
1: with the merchandise is that you know we started. I remember like doing the first two t-shirt designs, probably I don't know ninety eight or ninety nine, and in the old days, you know, we've had a web shop for well over 20 years but in the old days you know it was just proper old school mail order you know we had a handful of items and people sent us a cheque and when the cheque cleared then we'd send them something um, thankfully we got past that and to like you know we got, we got to a point where again like I said you know given the kind of nature of the music and the way that I maybe Tony and I are as people you know when it comes to merchandise we also wanted to have fun with it you know we're not, you know, we're not trying to be com garçon like far from it but of course there's there's this sort of typical you know clothing you know t shirts and hoodies and that kind of thing and and we do caps and we do but then you know you also get into things like you know we we did some running gear and we did some like um women's leggings and we did some rubber rings for our beach festival and then you know it's Christmas, so we did some cooking aprons and some matching rubber gloves uh, oven gloves and you know we do sunglasses and we do stickers and we do earplugs and we do beer mats and um, and it's just, you know, I suppose on the one hand you, you kind of do it because you recognise that you can, you recognise that in fact, um, you know, we're blessed with a, you know, with a passionate audience and people that have grown with us and that they, you know, they love the idea of some of these daft kind of products but you know we also make an effort to ensure that it's not just cheap tat because if it is you know your reputation drops off a cliff and also like no one wants to buy your stuff anymore so you know like the oven gloves are like made by some people in Ireland and they're actually quite expensive but they're really good oven gloves I mean you know it's like you know my mum needs to make sure that you know they're proper and so she road tests them and she's like yep you can do those uh and you know, like we've we've done a, we've done collaborative beers, but you know, again, like you know, we've we've done that with a brewer in North London called Signature Brew, and like honestly, the beer is fantastic because they're they're an excellent independent brewer. You don't just do it because you just want to see an artist holding a bottle of beer on Instagram, which of course is very helpful, but you actually do it on the basis that you're going to deliver something meaningful and something of quality. So, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing with the merch, but like you just. Uh, I think we recognised maybe sort of 10 years ago that the growth of the company was such that we could afford to sort of stretch out a bit with it, have a bit more fun, you know, take a chance on a few odd things and sometimes just do 50 50 things, which you're not going to make any money at, but just because it ensures that you're not just doing the same regular stuff that any other record label can do by finding the same broker in Kent. Because, you know, like that, you know how like if you're an accountant's firm and you have... Golfing umbrellas and mouse mats and uh, and a t-shirt because that's you know you just get you get given that package by the bloke that drives around the industrial estate. It's like it's like the opposite of that. So some of the merch that we've done is like like we we did these doormats that were made in China, but they were proper like they're full on you know and it was ridiculous how quickly they sold out. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but you know yeah
0: sometimes but, things just connect and like god knows why right yeah
1: yeah 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 uh and so you just like you just kind of like just trying but you try and keep making it creative as well as ensuring that actually that you don't just lose money doing some really terrible products that no one wants
0: <laughs> yeah sure so my my other question about you know the way things are running now was to do with the a&r side so obviously you mentioned that you know it's the, the, the biggest revenue stream is recording music which I'm sure will be a surprise to some people listening to this but you also mentioned you had 24 artists was it 24 artists I think you said yeah I
1: I think that's right yeah
0: sure so and and on by which I take it you mean on long-term deals generally
1: but not exclusively like that 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 was okay
0: so that so that was my question so how so how do you tend how do it how do you have like a a general way that you you tend to do that like it had
1: Um, always like for many many years you know for many years it, it had followed a relatively traditional kind of arc um from when we i mean i think danny bird was the first artist that we signed and then high contrast etc but from the end of the 90s you know our our outlook was and i, I used to you know i was lucky in the like ninja tune are really good friends of ours and uh pete quick was always really generous with his time and would give me you know some nice little bullet point bits of advice and you know, when it came to sort of signing artists, we we were always thinking in terms of album projects. And of course, you know, if you're going to do an album project, why on earth would you do a one-off after investing all of that time, money and blood, sweat and tears? You know, you want to have an option. So relatively speaking, for quite a long time, you know, the artists that we signed, we signed them on traditional exclusive album deals, whereby probably you'd look to sign an artist for three albums. And that might mean that they would... They would say out their contract in five years, but for some it might be 12, you know, because obviously people work at a different rate and have different commitments and touring schedules. So it, it followed that sort of format for a long time until I would say maybe the last, maybe the last sort of four to five years, where as streaming just really took over um, and dominated everything, that we started to find that maybe and it could have been new artists or maybe artists with whom we might have released two to three albums, artists start to say, I don't know if I want to do an album, but I think I'd like to do a series of regular releases and I just want to release one track every two or three months, for instance, or I just want to do a series of EPs, or you know. um, And I get that. It's not necessarily the kind of, it's not always the kind of um, template that I want to pursue, but increasingly over these last few years, as a team we've recognized that each artist is different they have different motivations and if they are in their early 20s or in their late 40s and they've you know they've had five albums out or they've only had a couple of singles artists are very different and they have different aspirations and different ambitions and so a lot of our job is to continue to be flexible and adapt and understand that our main purpose here is to develop and nurture and build artists careers so we need to recognize that in 2022 that could be in a number of different ways that said whenever we sign whenever we sign an artist we sign the the the, their recording and their publishing Um, that doesn't always work for everyone but since day one that's just been the way that we've tried to put it together because as as an independent um you need that level of control and flexibility and autonomy, which particularly... Re- let
0: me let me just interrupt you there. So is that a deal breaker for you? You have to do it? Or-
1: yeah, I would say nine times out of ten, unless the artist is then saying to me, yeah, but, you know, I've got 1000000 monthly listeners, yada, 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 and I might be like, yeah, okay, that changes things. When, you know, we've... Often the focus of the label has been you know in signing and supporting emerging artists up and coming artists you know it's it's rare that we've sort of brought someone in that's already got quite an established profile so on that basis you know we, we we've we've always said it's not because we you know we don't we don't uh, we're not we're not trying to handcuff artists into a deal that we think is unfair i mean far from it and the fact is also bear in mind i can make you an offer if you don't want to sign it you just walk away <laughs> it's like no one's holding a gun <laughs> to your head um on the one hand, on the one hand, because of all the overheads, because of all the things that we do, we need we need that that level of revenue coming to the company. But when we look, especially now, you know, when we recognise that the days of the days of a big ship out on your release day are over, right? Because people barely buy physical products, and so now you're just competing with hundreds of thousands of tracks on streaming platforms. So let's be honest, making money from just releasing music. Is unbelievably hard. So a label like us needs more of that autonomy and ability to work songs and catalogue. Now, if you have the recording and the publishing, when it comes to, uh, particularly in terms of syncing music to computer games or adverts or content on YouTube or whatever it might be, if you're able to control both sides of the song, you have, it's like a one-stop shop, as we call it. And, you you know, you have much more leverage to be able to, and in a positive way, but in a good way to exploit catalogue. And that's a huge part of what record labels need to do these days because times have changed. You know, um, 10 years ago, it was very, very different. 20 years ago, it was phenomenally different. But like now, if you're going to invest in brand new music, you need to know that you can do more than just chuck it on a streaming platform and hope for the best because it's just not enough. Otherwise, you might. I think you should,
0: might as well just call it a day. Absolutely. So, um, okay. So, there's obviously the publishing part of it, which you mentioned when you in the kind of overview. But so, do you have a like a dedicated member of staff or various people that, that look after the the kind of the, like the sync stuff and like the, the kind yeah. of more the wider kind of exploitation?
1: Well, yeah. So we have so so, so we have someone that actually manages the publishing company publishing ring is called Songs in the Kier Knife. So that's that's his priority, and the, um, one of the nice things about that is that with that roster, we, we have the opportunity to kind of actually broaden that roster, and we sign writers and producers and singers to the publishing company that aren't necessarily drum and bass artists, and, uh, so that, and also there are a number of artists on the publishing company that we don't release their music, we just publish it. Right. Which, you know, offers us a lot more creative and musical breadth other opportunities in terms of what we can do with actually exploiting the published works as well as cross fertilizing with the artists that are signed here for recording and publishing and uh, offering them other opportunities and um, other, you know, ideas and features uh, and collaborations. Um, In terms of the sync, one of our most senior um, team members, she heads up the sync is supported by the publishing manager and myself because we've, I mean, I used to do the sync in the past and now Megan does that and that's kind of keying into the kind of network that we've been building over the years like so many other labels have just in terms of, you know, brands and supervisors uh, and games companies and you name it um, which is a very, very sort of fast-moving landscape but, so there's two or three people within the company that, that will then support and focus on the sync opportunities you know, as and when we can actually Get some, craft some, or some arrive on our desk as well.
0: Okay, so just one more question regarding the deals. Like one of the things that we've talked about on the show repeatedly has been the kind of changing nature of the album format and how it, yeah, how um how listeners of music kind of interact with it. So, do you still mm. structure your deals in terms of in, ter- in that way, in terms of you'll sign for three albums or whatever? Or is, I mean, is there a shifting of the way you've thought about that over time or like, tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is. And,
1: you know, I I suppose at the moment, um, maybe two thirds of our deals are still relatively traditional like that. But there certainly are other artists that would say, you know, they would would like to work with the company. They're not convinced by the format. And then the, the most natural thing then to offer is actually offer a term deal instead of like a product deal. Product deal being relatively traditional that you kind of commit to albums and singles. Um, A term deal being that, you know, essentially you commit to working with the company for a certain length of time. And within that, you know, there's like a minimum commitment so that, you know, we're not going to sign you and invest in you for like a five or 10 year deal. And you're only going to put out two songs because that doesn't work for me. But, you know, so so I think I think. Generally, these days, the the smartest thing really to do is just to, of course, sit down with an artist and kind of go, well, look, what are you looking for? What, you know, why are we having this conversation? Why do you want to, why do you want to work with us? Why do we want to work with you? What are the ambitions that you've got? And, you know, depending on the artist, probably depending on their experience or age, they may well... You know, they they will naturally reference other maybe successful drum and bass artists or they might reference other successful dance music artists. They might talk very passionately about album projects or they might talk very specifically about release strategies that have nothing to do with physical format. Um, You know, they might just sort of say, well, I just think it's all about regular tracks coming out and that's the only thing that matters because that feeds into your live work and then I want to be able to get some big remixes and and then I want to, you know start my own live show and tour the world and then retire in Ibiza when I'm 40. You know, like you just don't know, do you? But certainly we've had to learn in these last, particularly maybe these last sort of five years, how to be uh, a lot more flexible because that's the nature of this industry and that's the nature of, um, you know, this business. And I think particularly when you're working in dance music, uh, unlike, you know, more traditional sort of guitar bands, rock and roll, that kind of thing, where there isn't necessarily a kind of rule book to this. Um, and whilst at the same time, you know, artists that we come across, you know, they naturally, they, they want to be, they want to be Nat Sky. They want to be Wilkinson, you know, they want to be Jason Status, that kind of thing. They want to, they want to achieve that level of visibility and familiarity and success. And like, I get it, you know, and I, in, in so many ways, you know, we want that success for them Um but then sometimes also, you know, we also might explain to them that, you know, it doesn't, well, for a start, how many people will achieve that within this genre? Relatively very few. But that said, can we give examples of artists who've had sustained careers as essentially underground dry and bass artists? Absolutely. Got loads of them. Um, and whilst it's maybe harder to do that these days, you know, if you look at an artist, let's say like Logistics, who I've worked with for probably twenty years, he's released, I think, uh eight albums on hospital. And is like you know, he's he's built up such a catalogue of music that just the sort of royalty accounting on that year in, year out, is pretty decent without him necessarily doing anything. And he you know, and he's not a big, massive drum and bass artist, but he's well known, he's established, but he just does what he does and he's very happy in his own lane.
0: Okay, so a question on that, um would be Having a big catalog, and and you've just been talking about like exploitation of catalog, yeah. and how much more important that is now. So, like going back, say ten, fifteen years, would that have been the same story? I mean, I'm guess what I'm getting at here is like to what extent is <laughs> to what is what extent is streaming and all the rest of it kind of unfairly maligned? Yeah. The, the kind of the term like oh, streaming saves the music industry does get banded around, yeah. And there's definitely something in it, but like, yeah, just tell me, tell me about how you see that a little bit. Yeah,
1: it's interesting, like, you know, because it, it's not, for instance, like, you know, it, it's not fashionable or particularly sort of hip to say nope. <laughs> that streaming has saved the music industry because the, you and I know that the narrative is just to kind of like shake your fist at Spotify and everyone else and say this is a disgrace. I think it's fair to say that the pay through on streaming platforms could be better, and yet at the same time, the access and the uh, you know the, the access to catalog is unparalleled, and logically that has to be a good thing, right? And for those of us that actually have substantial, you know, twenty six year catalog, you know, there's thousands of tracks on the catalog. It's not necessarily easy. You know, You don't just because you have deep catalogue doesn't mean that you just have <laughs> hits for years. I mean, often it's the reverse, you know, often, especially in something that's as fast moving and kind of current as drum and bass, it's not easy to kind of like maintain those streams on some of those older tunes. But then again, that's something that we as a company are, you know, starting to put more time and effort into because we absolutely recognise that now we're in this, the landscape that we're in now, the sort of the re the resharing or the re-promoting or the remarketing of catalog standout tracks classic moments whatever that might be is something that we have very much at our fingertips if we choose to put the effort in and that's a real plus because you know we used to be i mean there was i guess there was just like a certain sweet spot maybe I maybe selfishly for us, maybe it was between sort of 2003, 2008, where, you know, I can remember like just repressing vinyl every single week. Like I used to be on a phone call with SRD, our distributor at the time, and you'd just go through a list of catalogue numbers, like 300 of that, 500 of that, 300 of that. Like, wow, that, those days are long gone. <laughs> but they were, of course, pre-streaming. So that was like, that. that was the market. The market was vinyl. Right. And of course, then increasingly digital downloads, which at the time everyone was panicked by. And we all thought that we all thought that we'd lose our shirts and everything would go, go to shit. But of course, it didn't. But, you know, what, what, what we have now is this, you know, is this fairly amazing kind of universe where. And I, I have to say, I think that Spotify algorithm is pretty cool because as a casual, not as a casual listener, as a listener, you know, I have multiple playlists that I make for my own um, taste whether it's work-related or just, you know, a deep reggae playlist or some, you know, blue-eyed soul, or whatever it is, I have a fairly broad taste in music. But the killer for me is, like, when I'm doing the washing up, as I often am, um, and things come on, you know, on the algorithm, and you're like, wow, what's that? And that could be, like, it could just be, uh, you know, a track by Nux. Who in the end my daughter introduced me to, like you know, one of the latest you know uh, chart storming grime artists, but it, or it could be like from the flip side of an average white band album that I bought 12 years ago and I never listened to, you know, or it could be something that because I was listening to some modern jazz quartet got inspired, you know, like it it's it's kind of mind blowing, I think sometimes the things that are promoted and and, and and suggested to us. And so, I, you know, my I, I'd like to think that, you know, my musical knowledge is pretty decent. You know, I grew up in record shops and I've been 30 years plus in this business. I've got quite a big, you know, still expanding record collection. But, you know, that phenomenon of streaming and the algorithm, it, it's kind of quite amazing of how you can get introduced to all manner of other... Arabic music, Turkish music, Turkish hip hop, like you name it. It's kind of it's crazy and that and that that has to be a good thing.
0: Yeah, I think um like the music discovery element of it is often kind of waved away, but I mean I totally agree with you. Like it I mean there's quite a lot of different facets to it. There's the kind of algorithm thing as you, as you said, but also just even like there are certain editorial playlists that I follow that are really quite useful in just keeping up to date and good stuff that comes out and um you know I I don't want to be a I am sometimes accused of being a cheerleader for Spotify I I definitely want to avoid that kind of uh, reputation but I definitely think people go a bit too far the other way in the whole thing Mm. and and it is definitely true that it's um it's kind of unlocked certain aspects as you're just describing, you know, with the, with the catalog stuff, particularly if you're a record label. But, but just as a consumer, uh, which is a terrible word, which I need to stop using, but like, you know, as a listener of music, <laughs> it is really useful. And I think there are, there are, there is real value to it, I think in some respect. Absol-
1: no, a- a- absolutely. And as I say, like, you know, of course, when we stop and actually work out how much a stream pays through, pending it being, on a freemium or a subscription service, I mean, of course, it's it's mind-blowingly tiny. I mean, we all know that, and so I think the hard side of it is that for those of us that, of course, are um, releasing new music, is that you know when you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into a new project, and then some of those tracks perhaps only sort of stream, you know, thirty thousand times or forty thousand times, that does not add up to a chunk of change no similarly when you actually hit half a million a million plus then of course it starts to kind of pay through in a different way but also you you know we you know we tend as we're just now you know we talk about one uh one leading streaming platform there are others and naturally most of us releasing brand new music we're talking about spotify and we're talking about apple but we're also talking about youtube and we may be to a lesser extent talking about Deezer and Tidal. so you know it's it's not as bad as I as people bang on about, and also the one thing that I tend to say is like, you know, be very, very careful what you wish for, because if you really want to take this fight to its logical conclusion and bring Spotify down, what do you think is going to happen next? Like just in that short term, mm. do you not maybe recognise that a lot of people, and I mean those of us on the on the creative side, might quickly suffer very, very rapidly, and a lot of people will just duck out because. <laughs> you know in many respects you could say that spotify is saving the music industry
0: yeah sure i mean there are lots of people who say that probably quite quietly most of the mm. time but <laughs> yeah yeah
1: but it's not per- you know it's not perfect it's not perfect but but at least but at least we have it thank goodness and we have you know we have that platform those platforms um and we offer that opportunity to our artists
0: absolutely um right so i wanted to go All the way back to the start of you getting into all of this stuff. I've been, I I was a Hospital Records fan from I think about 2000. Okay. Um, And actually, what drew me into it wasn't the drum and bass stuff, it was the more kind of like broken Hmm. beaty type stuff that you guys were doing back then. Because it was, it started off as quite a multi genre label. It definitely had a sound to it. It was all kind of like the kind of jazzier side of either like broken beat or like some even more kind of like housey stuff like something like the early landslide stuff but also yeah, yeah. also a fairly hefty drum and bass thing as well so was mm. drum and bass always the main focus for when you started it in fact actually before you answer that can you just, just give me a bit of a like a you know just an overview overview of your musical background coming into doing it
1: um sure i mean like personally my i i I had very little musical background (laughs) um like because I I don't read music I'm not I I can't play an instrument uh and my karaoke is pretty bloody awful but my my background was just purely as a fan you know I I I started buying records when I was 10 um I was really into heavy metal when I was 10 um and I remember vividly when Back in Black by ACDC came out I'm queuing outside our price to go and buy it um so I was just I was just a a genuine fan of music and of records. Um, I've finished school, went to college, and like so many people, when I went to college, I, I, you know, I took my records and I and I started DJing. Although I had no idea what I was doing, I didn't really know what DJing was, but kind of got into that whole sort of phenomenon at the end of the eighties. I was up in studying in Bradford in Yorkshire and um, started to gradually work out what DJing meant. And when I while I was doing that, uh, I was really into, I was into really into that, you know, the end of the eighties, early nineties hip hop scene, which was really really informative to me, and and what that opened up in terms of all of the samples. I was fascinated by the samples, so that led to me digging into just what jazz was, or what deep soul was, or you know, African music. Um, kind of found myself as sort of involved in the acid jazz scene, just as a as a fan you know as someone that was going record shopping in london after college and then i started working at Soul Jazz records behind the counter two days a week um you know which was just my favorite record shop at the time and that was you know 30 years ago when you know that that was the internet you know like if you were into if you're into music if you're into black music if you're into like you know jazz and soul and funk and hip hop that tiny radius within soho that was like the internet because you just wandered between different counters for days, you know, and just hanging out with people, listening to people that people were bringing cassettes of, you know, Norman Jay on um, Capital or or David Rodigan or Peterson, and they they you know oh, do you know what that is and etc. And um, yeah, there, there was a band called Is It um, who were part of the Acid Jazz circuit, and that was Tony's band. And I, I had a couple of their records, and I was also doing bits of design work. I used to, I used to a lot of the adverts in the columns on timeout magazine and the, when time when timeout was like you know timeout was also like the internet timeout was the bible that was that that was where we found out everything that was going on it Re- used to be really thick and in the music pages there'd be like columns of like adverts for like gigs at ronnie's and the hundred club and the bass clef and i used to design a lot of those adverts and because i studied art and design at college and and i often was designing for a banquet is it got introduced to tony and we started working together um so we i worked with him on his label tongue and groove from early 93 until late 95 just in that sort of purple patch for acid jazz music but then that sort of that took a massive dip when the phenomenon of really trip-hop and uh moax really took a hold because really it changed wow. I, it changed never- everything
0: i'd never never connected those dots before, but that's really interesting yeah okay because you
1: sort of had you kind of had what was because i was before I went to college i was I was you know I was going to some of the rare groove warehouse parties like Shake and Finger Pop and people like that that were hosting in and around you know London and Hanway Street and Tunnel Court Road, which was like a sort of eighty six eighty seven thing and that evolved into the the you know really the acid jazz scene um which was jazz and funk and contemporary music and old rare groove music um but it was very much based on kind of uh bands so it's a lot a lot of bands like is it like the influence like raw stylus a very early jamira choir you know that whole sort of scene which was very much based around live music um but that that phenomenon of you know those era defining records from say Massive Attack and Portishead and then you know the emergence of James Lavelle's Mo Wax and then everything that came off the back of that, which was a whole slew of, you know, other people really getting into that, which was, we used to call it headphone music because obviously it was relatively slow hip hop beats and it turned everything upside down and it had a big effect on the label that we were working on and um, so we kind of, really, we just jacked it in. We were like, oh, we're not going to make it. This is like, this is this is really hard work. And um Tony convinced me to spend about nine months just just pissing about in the studio making music with him. And I just cause I just had a big record collection. We had we were renting this really nice basement studio in West London. Um and we started mucking about making music and I was just I would just spend days and hours like pouring through records, coming up with what I hoped were quite decent samples, whether it was breaks or string sections you know all that kind of nonsense and we started to kind of make all sorts of music together we actually had quite a laugh and we i was really skinned but we were having fun and i was i was like 25 years old um and so we made all this different music but it wasn't just drum and bass we were making some very musical drum and bass we made a bit of trip up i also made quite a lot of house music
0: let me let me just ask you at that point because you immediately said drum and bass so um, were you into like jungle and all that stuff from early on Um what had you been going to Raves and stuff? Like what was the yeah, what was the I'll be honest, we
1: don't we didn't know, we didn't really we didn't really go to the Raves, but what I think (laughs) I think what we were really getting into was in sort of ninety-four-95. Being Londoners, we we used to listen to a lot of pirate radio. You know, we'd listen to like a lot of shut up and dance and DJ hype on the radio. And also also the glory days of the Blue Note, because when the you know, I used to go to the Blue Note when it was called the Bass Cliff. You know, me me and my brother used to go there and listen to Norman Jay on a Sunday in the basement, and then it got taken over, got turned into, you know, got turned into the Blue Note, and then, you know, as we all know, there were these kind of iconic uh, nights, one of which was Metalheads, but then there was also Ninja Tune. I remember, like, you know, is it Ninja Tune didn't ever really do many club nights, but for a while they did this wicked club night in the Blue Note.
0: Yeah, it's called Stealth, wasn't it? I think it was actually
1: even before that. like they, Really? You know, okay. literally the first things they'd ever really done because they'd only been going for a few years at that point. Yeah. And, you know, like hearing people like um, Pusher on that tiny little stage in the basement and DJ Food and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, there was that... There was this sort of fascinating kind of 94, 95, 96. It was like another sort of shift in... Um, in club culture and it was you could see lots of things were changing you know um, and we were sort of part of that we were part of that moment where a lot of those labels and it was actually you know what it was a lot it was a lot of those labels that were in the acid jazz movement started to shift and they started to go in a different direction they, they you know they sort of stopped making all of that all of that sort of classic street soul and were making you know downbeat stuff breakbeat stuff and of course they're making like jungle drum and bass as well
0: let me just um, put a pin in that because I mean it really did make sense at the time what you did those kind of like kind of cross section thing but it it might not make any sense at all now someone who's a kind of casual observer of what drum and bass is now but it absolutely did make sense for people to be making those kind of um, making music in that cross section of genres
1: yeah yeah because because it was just you know uh, Things were, things were really, really evolving, and you know, being in London, which is just one of the greatest cities in the world for music, you know, there was just there was just this constantly shifting melting pot of ideas and sound, you know, like, and whether you were in, like, we, you know, we we, we were working in Tottenham, so like we you know we were up in North London, which was very very rich for jungle and drum and bass, um, you know, and hip hop, and you name it, um, but. It, there was almost like these few years when it, people were just experimenting with all sorts of stuff. You know, it was, it was kind of going in all sorts of different directions and people were clearly finding their feet. But it did, it did spell a fairly seismic shift away from this kind of acid jazz scene, which I have to say, it always makes me a little bit sad when whenever you talk about, not you, whenever one talks about acid jazz, people kind of go, oh yeah, such a cliche, it's really, really corny. It was brilliant. Like, I, I'm so grateful to have been part of that because that movement was really exciting and it was really, it, it, it was just really, really fun. But it...
0: Yeah, I think people just think Jamiroquai, basically, when you hear that term now, which is a bit of a shame, really, even though there are some good Jamiroquai records. Yeah, and, and all those kind of,
1: all those kind of like, you know, 100% acid jazz compilations that were advertised on the telly, you know, it just, it, it, yeah. it, and it quickly sort of, but that, that, that quickly shifted because people were so keen to be digging into other areas. And so that's kind of how we evolved and that's where we arrived. So we had all this music in 96 and we actually started three record labels. We didn't just start one because we took all this music to um, vinyl distribution. Vinyl were the biggest drum and bass distributor at that point
0: out in reading yeah well, well we talked about uh vinyl distribution with mj cole actually last week right. he was working there briefly yeah yeah up in reading right so that's I right it was.
1: so so we went there and we took them all this stuff and they were like what are you doing this doesn't make any sense we were like because <laughs> we were like this is all going to be on this label called hospital and they were like "No, no, no 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 <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense you should start three labels and so in fact we did that and I, I, I am grateful to them for, I'm not grateful to them for lots, but I'm grateful to them for that. Because, so then we started three labels. We, st- we started a trip-hop label called Casualty because we thought that was funny because we had hospital and then we're like, okay, so we'll call the damn beat one Casualty. Which was, trust me, was fucking terrible. We only <laughs> we only did two 12 inches and then we, we gave it up. But we started this other label called Galactic Disco, slightly oddly named for house music. And so from 96 until about, 2000 2001 so about five years we actually ran two labels and because we were doing that the house and the house at that point was really really influenced by the whole french scene you know used to call it filtered filtered house filtered disco yeah yep because let's be honest that's basically what it was it was just it was just people going that's a great loop let's filter it for about six minutes put a beat on it (laughs) that'll do no disrespect, but that's what most of us did.
0: But including Daft Punk, to be honest.
1: <laughs> you know, what do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and and, and and in many ways, at that point, the French were out in front, you know, Cassius, uh, super discount, you know, Motorbass, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But so we were sort of doing that throughout the end of the nineties, and at, and at one point, in all honesty, we were gonna sack off hospital and just make house music because it's quite easy making house music, no disrespect. But <laughs> being really obtuse idiots we were like yeah but drum and bass is more exciting it's kind of harder but we think we've got more to say in drum and bass than we've got to say in house do you know what i mean Yeah, yeah and you know thankfully that's the decision that we made but that long rambling story is just meant to try and illustrate as you said those early days of hospital which did go into we the last non-drum and bass release we put out was in 2003 with Futuristics, which was very much a kind of broken beat Garage album, which I think... And that's
0: a Zed Bias record, Exactly, it, right?
1: yeah, it's a Z Bias record. And I, and, I, and I have to say, like, I love it, but it's instructive because it didn't sell very well, because by that point, we already had
0: people seven years
1: in going, mm, what's this? This isn't drum and bass. Do
0: you know what I mean? Well, we if like, so- I can, um, let me just put that into context for some of the people who have been listening to listening to the show over the weeks. So, the Futuristics record was played loads at forwards. Mm. Um, yeah, it, in the period that hardly anyone was going to forward, <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah, might, yeah. that might might give you some insight into into why no one bought it. But I certainly bought it. It was great, and um, Zepaiah had another. Another artist called Daluk at the time yep. as well, which was a kind of like breaky, jazzy kind of almost bit heavier, still a bit, still a bit garage. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the Daluk one was a bit heavier, definitely, and then the futuristic thing was a lot more jazzy, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. But but the other the other artist who was a kind of forward affiliate, in fact, he played loads up forward was Landslide. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and he was it was really his stuff that got me into into hospital i mean his stuff was just incredible i i don't even know what he's doing now do you do you still yeah yeah, yeah i mean
1: you know we're friends and tim uh i mean tim has uh, a settled family out in uh, i think it's Penarth in south wales oh, right, he okay. he teaches at i want to say gloucester university i think that's right tim's amazing um lovely lovely guy unbelievably underrated He made some incredible music. And I feel, I always feel sad that, you know, certainly within that kind of broken beat scene, I never felt like he got the credit that he deserved. But Tim was a guy that we'd, see, he released a bunch of drum and bass in Hospital and then we put out his album, which does feature some drum and bass, but it was really, his, 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 his album's called Drum and Bosser because he was really fascinated by, the kind of chopping up of classic Brazilian tunes and bossa tunes, and sort of translating that into his own kind of take on breakbeat, garage, broken beat, whatever you want to call it. Um, but he was actually with us from the early days of Hospital, and he, you know he helped uh, and contributed quite a lot to the debut London Electricity album, which is really me and Tony that's called Pull the Plug. But Tim was quite a key part of that as well, and so he was kind of part. He was he was a really important part of the team in those early years and you know we we then went on to release his solo album having done a bunch of singles you know he did some remixes for us and I you know I suppose in a way I felt sad that by the time that you know as we evolved from 2001 2002 and then that Futuristics album and that as I say that was really kind of the end of us kind of uh, supporting that broken beat Identity because we just realised that we just weren't. It looked like we weren't going to be the right people to deliver it because people by by now knew us for drum and bass.
0: Well, I mean I, the way it, the way it turned out is that no one was really the right person to deliver it because that whole sounds didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, to be honest, it's a real shame because I loved it at the time, but it, it just wasn't really. An audience for it that was big enough, I guess, to to sustain itself, and because there was such a, because that period in the music industry was such a, like it was everything was in flux, you know, yeah. and so it was only really like the real strongest stuff that really had an audience that survived that period. I think.
1: Yeah, I feel like I got to say, and I feel that one of the main failings was was that no one seemed willing to actually give it a name. So Right, right, right. You we, mean the genre. We a talk genre we talk about it as broken beat because we understand it historically and we remember it and stuff. But I can remember talking to Mikey from Bugs, Bugs in the Attic.
0: That was the other name I was going to mention
1: in relation to this you say, know yeah. Who were kind of who were kind of like the flag bearers for it, who were making you know, they 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 signed the album with V2 and it they looked like they were really on their way. But I remember and I haven't seen Mikey in years, but I'm I'm quite confident this is kind of what he said was that I said, look, you know you really need to kind of be out there kind of going this is broken beat and he was like no i don't want to do that you need
0: you need to give it something to hang off don't you i don't want to give it a tag and
1: i was like but i just think it's a mistake because people are going to go into record shops they're going to go into hmv and they won't know where to find it one of the one of the obvious strengths of drum and bass is that it is what it is it's 174 well these days 174 bpm it's called drum and bass you know, yes, it's Drum and Bass and Jungle, but nonetheless, you will find it under the title Drum and Bass and Jungle. You won't just find it under... In those days, it was called Soul and Dance. And that's a disaster. If you're going to go in a record shop looking <laughs> yeah. for bugs in the attic or landslide, and you're looking in Soul and Dance... And I honestly think that was, that, that was a massive problem. And a lot of the people involved in it, you know, from, like, you know, Goya Distribution and the, the artists and the labels... There was this, because it was such a tight-knit community that was really sort of like London and then a few key UK cities and then people in Europe, but they all kind of knew each other and it was kind of great and they were all connected, but the wider world couldn't quite get it. They just weren't. And then and then before you know it, well, hold on. No, it's garage. Oh, it's dubstep. And then you, you run a whole other thing going somewhere else. So... You know point being that you know Tim Landslide never really got the credit that he that, that he deserved, but he was he was an instrumental part of those early years and when we were doing those you know whether it was his record and the like the outpatient series, we did three outpatients compilations, which you know we just had a lot of fun doing to be honest like i you know because i i've always been involved in that for want of a much better word sort of jazz or new jazz scene and know a lot of the people there so I was bringing in some of those producers for sort of one-off tracks and it was just fun doing it, you know Um, but we recognised that we did get to a point where okay, I think we're going to just have to go with what we're good at go with what we're known for because we can't if we're going to try and be an eclectic label it's going to probably be to our detriment so let's let's just focus go with the branding go with the music and that's kind of that's how things evolved I guess from 2004 onwards really
0: yeah i mean it was a smart choice for sure i mean we <laughs> definitely it was definitely not a choice that we ever made with hot flush and have definitely suffered over the years mm. because of it you know i think being focused and having like a very obvious i mean as you said with like just having having a tag having a something to hang everything off really just makes a huge difference to people trying to put it in context of their own musical understanding if you know what i mean yeah yeah no, absolutely i think it really helps but um just before we move on from this like just um, you know you mentioned London Electricity which was yeah the the project that you um, you guys um, started the label with like where did that then go because you definitely I mean you left it at some point I'm pretty sure
1: yeah I mean like yeah fairly um, fairly early on um, so we did this like you know we did this um, debut album in 99 we did a few singles we did the album together and, you know, also like we were, and we were, of course, we're, we're DJing together doing that. Um, and f- so for the first sort of five years of the label, it was kind of hospital and it was London Electricity. It was me and Tony. It was th- That was kind of that, you know. Then we started to bring in, you know, we'd signed Danny Bird and then we signed High Contrast just for one, of, and they put out a single. And But in that early period, it was really just the two of us doing that and DJing and stuff and making music. But... You know, t- Tony was always the driving force in terms of the studio. I I loved being involved in it and but I I recognised my kind of failings in that regard and that, you know, he was delivering the lion's share of the of the kind of content and I was helping like with the, the, the drums and the sort of arrangements and bits and pieces and digging out fantastic samples. We sort of like got into when we when we put out Lincoln's debut album True Colours, which I think was two thousand and one, which was a big moment for the label because we really established a new artist that wasn't us and he was at that point he then out of nowhere from after about a year or two in he was just flying and that album you know was really really big in you know relatively speaking and i think it i think it just simply um made us realize that we had the potential to really develop a label as opposed to an imprint for our own music which was where we started and so you know in talking to tony about it you know it he was sort of saying, look, you know, next electricity album, I think I want to do it on my own. And, you know, we were talking about being an artist as opposed to like being a label. And I just sort of said, well, look, I think the the sensible thing for me to do is that I just need to sit in the office and try and really focus on what we're going to do with this label and how we can start to build it. And that's, so we, we made that sort of natural split and it would have been about 2002. Um, and, you know, aside from aside from me probably feeling like a little bit put out that, you know, I didn't get my face in magazines anymore and people didn't want to interview me and, you know, um, I got past that. Um, and thankfully, you know, I mean, trust me, it was like some pretty serious hard graft, but over the few coming years... Um, and I, it was, certainly wasn't me on my own, but by by committing myself to the label and then bringing in a few staff and signing a couple more artists, things really started to blossom. And then, so look, my my sort of musical r- career was relatively short lived. I loved it; I was very grateful for it. But you know, the focus of my work in this company has always been the label.
0: Yeah, and um, and it's gone quite well, I think. Well,
1: thank you. You know, we've, we've, we've <laughs> done okay, but it's it's um, it. it at times, it's a slog, I tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know, absolutely. <laughs> so um, you mentioned how high contrast there, mm. uh, and like obviously, um, you know that. I mean, here is a name that just inspired lots of people, and yeah. must have been an exciting person to work with in that absolutely. in that kind of like period as the as the label was really taking off. So, um, like. Ha- uh, just getting it down to brass tacks, like what kind of deal did you sign him to at, at the start?
1: I mean, a pretty traditional deal. We would have, I mean, it, we, we we would have signed him on a three album deal.
0: And then how much of, how much material had you heard? Like how much of it was already written? I think we'd heard about three tracks. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> I think, do you know what it was? Like we, we like, you know, we met him because at that point we were still DJing together. It probably would have been 99, maybe even 98. Um, somewhere that we got invited to play was the Welsh club in Cardiff, um, Club Eiffelbach, as I think you pronounce it properly. Um, and you know we, you know we were DJing together, and there there was this like skinny little kid with short hair stood by the side of the stage, and he he he, he, he beckoned me over, and he said, um, "It's all right if I MC," and I was like, "No, you're right, mate." Which was definitely the right answer, by the way. Right, and that 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 was him. I had no idea who he was, but the following Saturday morning, we went to you know Catapult Records in the in the town centre because you know after a gig, you always want to go and do a bit of record shopping, sell out a few people, and he was behind the counter, and I was like, oh, you were the you were the MC guy. I was like, oh yeah yeah right, I, I, you know, and I probably said, oh, I'm sorry if I was a bit rude, but like you know, we don't really <laughs> we don't really play with MCs because we were a bit like that in those days, and uh, and he said. um I make a bit of music. I've got a I've got a mini disc. Do you want to Do you want to check it? I was like, sure. Um, so he gave me a mini disc because that was a thing in those days, and uh, and we t- we we took this back to London and played it. And like it was it was a bit left field, but it was fresh. But it was also really fast. So I rang him. and I was like, look, this sounds great, but it's far too fast. And he said, oh, yeah, a couple of people have told me that as well, actually. I'm like, I I said to him, I think this is something like about 180 BPM. And this is back in the day when, at that point, drum and bass was traditionally 160 or 164. So anyway, he sent us another mini disc and it was kind of the same ideas, but slowed down. And we were like, yeah, you know, this is really good. And one of those tracks was called Make It Tonight, which was his second single. Um, I think of the three tracks, we released two of them within about a year, and you know, I think the thing is at that point, you know you haven't really got much to base anything on, but we thought he sounds, he just sounds really imaginative, he sounds different to a lot of the other people that we're hearing at the moment and we weren't necessarily looking for someone but he just arrived and it just felt right and you know, we sent him uh, an offer and he was like yeah, I'm up for it and it it was pretty straightforward and then you know so um released the next three records and and things were just yeah things just went really really nicely you know pretty much from the off
0: which is unusual was it was there like a was it was there a sort of turning point at which suddenly it got big or was it just a kind of well for him kind of yeah a kind of yeah, incremental thing gone
1: I would say, I mean, you know, I remember it, we we put out his first single, and I think Danny Bookham was about the only person to pay any attention. Uh then we put out we put out his second single, Make It Tonight, and that started to get some proper interest. Um and then we were we were, we knew it was so we were making his album, um, and he made this tune called Return of Forever, which is quite long, it's about eight and a half minutes or something. So, because back in those days, you know, you could be that self-indulgent, which suited us fine, because we we're both into prog rock and jazz. But he made this tune, and I remember, honestly, I remember listening to it thinking, like, that's a game-changer. Like, that, that's a game-changing tune. I've not heard anyone make a tune like that. And sure enough, it was one of the few times that, I think it was the first thing that Andy C. ever kind of played, and Andy rang us after he'd been in America saying, I played that tune every set. Now, bear in mind at that point, you know, he wasn't known for playing much soulful stuff, shall we say. Um And I just thought, I just felt, yeah, I, I'm confident this is really going to go somewhere. And when it came to putting out his album, like, you know, like his album, like, you know, he launched his album, at um That's How It Is at Bar Rumba with Charles Peterson, which seems unimaginable these days, let's be honest. But back at that, you know,
0: like back when, well I mean Jars had done the you know the Ronnie Size album. Of course. So no, of it, course. at the time definitely made sense. Yeah, you know, and that was what, that was ninety seven. And like
1: and you see, like in that late nineties period, you know, like drum and bass, there was a certain type of drum and bass that was of course right across all the kind of jazz scene. Um and as you say, like, you know, Giles had absolutely played his part, you know, um, with with Represent and then with some of the solo records from Crust and Die and Sub. Um, So he was deeply kind of involved in it. So he was a big supporter. Um, And so I guess maybe we had a slightly sort of broader audience for that record. um, But it just really, really announced Lincoln and was fantastic for Hospital. Um, And then, of course, you know, very quickly, he became quite a key artist in the drum and bass scene. Um, and I'm really you know I'm really proud of that so sorry what, what year what, what year did the
0: album come out was that
1: 2001 or 2000 I should I might have an open Spotify and j- like double check but I think it was 2001 I think I'm yeah. right in saying that um, yeah. and yeah you know so um, and things just I guess sort of things evolved kind of from there
0: yeah and and you mentioned that the label was still fairly multi-genre kind of affair then you said futuristic Album 2003 you mentioned yeah so, when did you start doing the events?
1: Well, they they started in two thousand and one at Herbal in Shoreditch.
0: Ah, that's it. Yeah, um, I remember. Yeah,
1: much loved, um, sort of two floor bar just on Kingsland Road. Um, and you know, I remember. I remember when the club soon after the club opened, I went there and asked them if we could do a show, and they were like, "No, we don't do drum and bass, mate." <laughs> I was like, "All right, okay, fine." Um, and then about three months later, they put on a Metalheads night. So I rang them back, and I was like, uh, hello. And he went, yeah, when do you want to when do you want to play? Because they'd done a Metalheads night, and of course it was packed. Yeah. And within about a year, they must have had, I think they probably had drum and bass every Friday with sort of rotating sort of labels, Metalheads, hospital, um, therapy sessions, um, all sorts of things that were going on there. Um... But we did a monthly Friday, nine till three. It's about three quid, maybe five quid to get in. Um, and, you know, it was just drum and bass in the main room. And then upstairs was, that upstairs, uh, was kind of broken beat and hip hop and stuff like that. So in the early years, first couple of years, maybe, maybe the first two years, I think me and Tony would still play together playing drum and bass. Then I sort of graduated upstairs to the bar, kind of playing, just playing much, much broader stuff with Landslide and a few other DJs up there but um, it was great you know but of course it then sort of evolved into something else because after about I think a year we realised you know with Lincoln we got an opportunity to do a regular party in Cardiff which we did on a Thursday and that was about every that might have been every month I think Um, so we you know we started that and then I think after two years amazingly we got we got invited to do a quarterly residency at the Watergate in Berlin oh really Which no one would believe these days because clearly it's the home of minimal techno. But in 2003, they had a weekly
0: drum and bass Friday night, which you just you can't really imagine anymore. I I actually I remember hearing about it actually when I moved over to Berlin, which is 2007. I remember hearing about. Uh, the yeah Watergate Fridays mm. drone based Fridays yeah
1: so like it would be and like you know I so I remember going over there to see Uli who I, th- I think he's still involved in the club because he was one of the resident drone Bass DJs, um you know so I kind of went to the club and of course I was just like, wow, I mean yeah this is the nuts what a club like the club is ju- I you know one of my favorite clubs in Europe, and the fact that we were being invited to do a regular drone Bass party there we're like yeah man absolutely. Uh, and we I'm trying to think maybe did it maybe did it for about three years possibly I'm not sure if it was any longer or or shorter but it, it felt too short but of course in the end you know they were like I'm really sorry but like you know the owners just don't want any more drum and bass in here it's not you personally but
0: anyway basically what happened was that house and techno just took over berlin for a few years and it was just really hard to do anything else. absolutely sure in the city
1: yeah but by then fortunately by then i think by then, we'd started to do Bristol and Manchester, and then we had quite a number of UK residencies, and things just sort of evolved, you know. But and in uh, crucially, like two thousand and five, for the first time, we did Heaven um, in Chancross, which was a massive moment for us as a as a as a company, really, because we were sort of going from, you know, in London, basically, we were doing Shoreditch on a you know on a Friday for four hundred people once a month, um, and then uh, yeah, we just. And it was thanks to Tom Kelsey, who was one of our directors at the time. And, you know, we were like, we we knew that we wanted to do, we wanted to step it up. We wanted to be brave. And rather than, because at that point, still in drum and bass music, we would get invited to do big shows, but we'd, we'd be offered the small back room. And we were like, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. Done that a couple of times. It's rubbish. You know, we, you know, we belligerently felt that we were the main room. And no one would give us the opportunity, so you have to go and do it yourself. So we went to went to heaven, and Sarah, who, who's a good friend of mine now, but at the time she was the uh, bookings manager. And when she when I told her about Herbal, she just laughed at me for like five minutes. She's like, "So you want to go from that to this?" <laughs> and we were like, "Yeah." So she was like, <laughs> "Well, look, you're lucky because I like drum and bass, so let's give it a go." And so April two thousand and five, and just to show you how things changed, like we did. We sold 300 tickets in advance and we thought we were flying. And bear in mind, the venue is about 1,800 capacity. Now, in these days, you wouldn't even do the show, right? You'd cancel. No, it. no,
0: right, yeah. But we were like, oh, it's amazing. It we
1: got 300 advance sales. But on the night, the queue ran all the way down Villiers Street, onto the main road, up the road, up to the Strand. It was absolutely nuts. And, you know, it, it was just a, it was a huge, huge moment for us. And a bit of a turning point to then gradually start to establish bigger shows in London, and maybe you know bigger shows in Bristol. And um, but to I say, I mean, that's that's what seventeen years ago that we did that.
0: Yeah, let me let me just uh, ask you a question about that, about the ticketing thing, <laughs> because I mean, I, this is a kind of this is an an issue which is another issue which gets, which gets moaned about a lot and i just don't i don't know how it happened or how i feel about it now so yeah 300 advance sales but like still easily a sold out show mm. then but, but as you mentioned you wouldn't even find out if it was going to sell out on the door because you wouldn't open the doors now right so yeah, yeah, yeah. so what what happened there tell me
1: i suppose i suppose that you know it's just that in those in those days i mean look in those days you know 90s uh, you probably weren't even really doing advanced tickets at all. Because bear in mind, how how would you do an advanced ticket? I think this the, the, this is the key point. To actually sell an advanced ticket, you probably, you had to actively travel to a ticket
0: seller to buy an advanced ticket. Yeah, they used to sell them in record shops, didn't they, sometimes? Yeah, and that, so like,
1: yeah. and you know, when it comes to like drum and bass, like I can remember like, you know, off, you know, the big event flyers, the back of the flyer would just be, the details of, of about forty-eight record shops around London and the home counties, and also coach parties and all that kind of nonsense. Right, you know, I used to just like glaze over, looking at that. Like, what does this even mean? I don't get it. I'm not part of that scene or that culture. And that classically, of as we know, we know where that came from. That came from the M25 rays of the, uh, you know, of the late eighties. So that, but so there was there was like an established network and an established culture for sort of selling tickets like that. But I think the nineties, when you know clubbing became a thing. Really, you know, like you, like I remember. I remember when flyer packs were massive, right? You'd walk out of a club like the end, and you'd be given a pretty big, large brown envelope full of about thirty flyers. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually it was like part of the end of the night. You'd grab that, and on the on the night bus home,
0: yeah, you got something to read, right? Yeah,
1: got something to read. But you'd also work out where you're going to go next weekend, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I mean, it's it's ridiculous to think of it, but that's kind of how it was then, and then also the not every look not every club even did advance tickets you just turn up so you were still you were still in an era when for a lot of people going clubbing was like this is what time it opens some clubs sell out early some clubs don't so if it sells out early you queue up and you get there at 9 or 9.30 whatever it is but you don't buy advanced tickets people don't buy advanced tickets just wasn't really a thing at all and then it's like okay so advanced tickets maybe is a thing but then you've got to make the effort and go and buy them and Like, we weren't remotely set up to sort of... We we couldn't sell them ourselves, you know, over the phone or... I remember we had a few people would turn up to the the office to try and buy tickets. And then we would, progressively, we'd have a few tickets in the office because people would turn up and buy them from the front door, you know. But, so generally, it wasn't a thing. But obviously, as things evolved... Um, and purchasing advanced tickets became a bit easier. And then you get into the realms of something called the internet and buying things online, and gradually buying things online, people got more consumer confidence. Before you know it, it's the most natural thing to do in the world. And actually, that then buying tickets online in advance is relatively easy. Not as easy as it is now, but you know what I mean? Like 12 years ago, Mm. It was a it was a lot easier than it had been previously. So, I think I think it was just that natural evolution. That because clearly, I mean, we were stupid enough to open the doors with with three hundred sales, but but also, in those early days of doing well, those early days when we did heaven, we did heaven for two and a half years. But for me, heaven was always increasingly we would sell more and more advanced tickets. That definitely was a thing. But also, also we would only sell a certain amount of tickets in advance. Because we wanted... A, so part of what we wanted... We actually wanted a queue because part of the culture was having a massive queue. Because you also... Like, you literally get walk-up and you get people going, oh, yeah, what's going on there? Oh, yeah, wicked. And people just join the queue and they come in. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's
1: like a whole different... Really a whole different universe of doing events. But um, certainly one that I, I, I did enjoy very
0: much. Yeah. Uh, I actually played for you guys at Heaven. I just remembered. I've got the uh, flyer. Yeah, 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 yeah. You would have played in the... Th- third room i think third room yeah i was gonna say <laughs> um but it was a lot of fun uh, what, just just back on that tick- ticketing thing what what i was gonna hypothesize was that maybe it was something to do with the fact that production costs are higher now is that anything to do with it at all or what i'm not sure if that's necessarily a factor i think i just think a lot
1: of it was about the mindset and the culture and as i say bear in mind that generally there there, there, there was this sort of evolving period when, like, generally, if you went out, if you went clubbing, you just turned up. You just turned up. You join the queue and you turn up. Right, that's just how it happens. Um, and then, okay, maybe, but but getting advance tickets was always a bit of a pain in the arse. People couldn't really be bothered, and they'd only probably sell two hundred out of the six hundred capacity, or two hundred out of the thousand capacity for whatever venue you're going to. So often, you just, people just can't be bothered. I, I certainly can be bothered um so i don't think it was really i don't think it was necessarily about the economics but a lot of it was more about about the culture and then the access and the ease of use and the customer experience and then as people gained confidence in how to buy an advanced ticket and as that became a lot easier and it wasn't so difficult just to somehow get one you know you you want you don't want to have to travel somewhere to go and buy an advanced ticket you just want to buy an advanced ticket so by the time that you could sort of confidently buy them over the phone, that kind of thing, uh, I think that's what really just kind of started to evolve it. And now, of course, we're at the point where you know everyone expects to sell out their show before you even open the doors.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, um, you yeah, know the way it works now. Presumably, it is significant for the economics of an event because you get cash flow up front. Mm. Is that is that significant?
1: I think it's. I think some of it. I mean, for different promoters, it can be I think as much as anything is that you know any any event particularly a large scale event has a p and l like a profit and loss mm. whereby any sensible promoter has done their has done their sums and they know what their break even point is so logically you know you want to you want to at least hit your your break even point ahead of opening right because that's kind of logical. Rather than be at a point where before opening, if you're still sort of 10 grand in the hole, you, you could be struggling with your show in total. And no one really wants to put on a show that's actually going to lose the money. Um, so I guess it's just I guess it's just those, those those simple kind of facts and figures. But then also this is maybe this has been the case for quite a few years now. So we're in a different sort of phase of promoting Particularly the big shows, although this that kind of template I'm talking about relates to the smallest to the biggest event. Um, But also maybe because like some of the shows, and this does include us from time to time, some of the shows that are that that are put on um, carry some very significant financial overheads.
0: So yeah, so tell me tell me about how it then developed from from heaven because obviously you've moved in some fairly significantly bigger places since then.
1: Yeah. Like, we, you know, do you know what, like, you know, I, I, I really, really loved working at Heaven. It was, it, you know, I'd would i been to Heaven as a teenager, uh, iconic venue, very much, you know, the roots of Jungle Drum and Bass because of Rage, so all sorts of connecting dots. also quite amazing to be able to host an event literally in the centre of London because that's a very unusual phenomenon, let's be honest. You know, generally, you know, you go clubbing in East London, you go clubbing in North London, but how often do you go clubbing in the centre of London? Very unusual, but... Um, from there, um, basically the venue sold to a different owner, so most of the events got kicked out at that point. Um, I think we did a one off show at Fabric and then we were able to move into Matter because Matter was being built as a brand new venue. So we moved in there and that had an amazing sort of 18 months. Matter was massive, wasn't it? What was the yeah. capacity
0: there? I think, um, hmm.
1: I want to say like maybe 3000 but a lot of it was actually just the dynamics of it because it was custom built Sean Roberts and the fabric team who were the owners and the builders of it you know I like Sean kindly took me down there a few times when it was being built and it was just quite jaw dropping to see what they were doing you know with the with the base bins underneath the dance floor with the walkway that was three stories up you know there was all sorts of stuff there it was just it was you know it was a real privilege to be able to play at that venue um But sadly, uh, short lived because um, in the run up to the Olympics, it was a club that was primarily, of course, opening Fridays and Saturdays. We were very lucky because, for some reason, for many years, traditionally, drum and bass was a Friday thing, house and techno was a Saturday thing. Our Friday nights were great, but with all of the, it was really sort of TFL that screwed Matter because all the commitments they'd made to uh, Fabric as the people developing and running the site was that. Transport would always be okay. But in the run-up to the Olympics, which was 2012, so a couple of years before that, they were making so many changes to... They were shutting the underground, often on a Saturday. They were closing the tunnel for roadworks and stuff. So increasingly, the Saturday shows were getting screwed by travel restrictions, which were making it very, very difficult for people to get to the club. So sadly, in the end, um, you know, matter folded because they just they just got let down so monumentally by the council and by TFL and they, they 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 struggled with too many nights called it a day um so then we we were fortunate that at that point um they let go of some of the staff and one of the one of the staff members they let go of was Josh Robinson who we then employed straight away because Josh was our our guy for the drone based nights and matter and he's now our events director Oh, really well and, and, and Josh, um you know, just sort of picked up the mantle of hospitality, and from there we soon went to Brixton academy uh which was another another sort of milestone for us certainly, certainly for me personally, like probably my favorite venue in London started going there when I was fourteen to see bands and um we did some amazing shows at Brixton and then um And then from there, I think we were then doing 338 and then Finsbury Park and et cetera,
0: et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. So what's the biggest one you've done so far?
1: Well, I guess, um, I mean, I guess last year's uh, Weekend in the Woods, we did, so we did this thing called Hospitality in the Park, which was a a Saturday in September, um, which we started, I think it was 2015 or 2014. We did, I think we did five, five years in a row in September in Finsbury Park. We then started to evolve the idea of doing a weekend, a Saturday, Sunday, which would have ideally happened in 2020. Of course, didn't. But then we did. We did manage to put together in 2021 um, last September. And so that was, I guess, in total, that was a capacity of around sort of 20,000 across the two days. Um, so that, that yeah, that's quite an effort in terms of numbers I mean you know being able to do drum sheds at New Year for 10,000 on one night was great and then we've but we've also done we've just recently done our beach festival in Albania for 3,000 people and um, we're about to do in the end of this month we're doing a show on the harbour side in Bristol uh, which is sold out which is for 6,000 people for um, what's called hospitality on the harbour
0: (laughs) yeah so I mean how much international stuff do you I mean I was reading um I was reading an interview that you gave to an American site just before this have you done much stuff in the States
1: like we've done you know we've done we've, we've done bits and pieces but the, the the market in North America is obviously very very unique I mean it's you know it's like 52 countries um, that you have to traverse it is yeah and also to be fair drum and bass went through different stages quite in a quite a marked kind of fashion from the 90s to the 2000s um at one point it was very very rich for drum and bass and i would say you know the early 2000s you know a lot of artists were doing quite quite significant north american tours but that kind of evolved and changed and very much you know i think you know drum and bass and jungle kind of went a bit more underground and and re- retreated to the kind of reliable places like los angeles san francisco seattle denver new york boston um but as a countrywide phenomenon it was a lot harder so we've had, you know, we've had label tours. Uh, a lot of the artists go out there, of course, on their own to do shows, to do like, you know, five days or two weeks. But there was, you know, there was an era of artists being out there for three or four or five weeks at a time. But I mean, that that, 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 that those days are past, if I'm honest. Um, but there is still a very dedicated, very passionate drum-based community in all sorts of different places across the US. Um, there was a time when you know dubstep or more appropriately like bro step
0: kind of took over <laughs> um which is a yeah whole... we've discussed we've discussed that on the show i'm <laughs> sure you previously. have yeah. i'm sure
1: you have and like you know which is naturally something i mean which kind of meant nothing to me but it kind of it's sort of and trying to think about it, it for me it kind of preempted that phenomenon of edm and like you know when when america when america kind of allegedly discovered edm that was a whole other uh, sort of cultural shift for them and in some ways in some ways I want to say that there were there are a lot of fringe benefits for a lot of electronic artists but you know the that kind of and it kind of is still there to a degree you know you know perfectly well yourself a lot of those events and brands and festivals that are maybe built around you know those kind of fist bumping, types of electronic music whether
0: it's (laughs) that's one way of putting it you
1: know whether it's it's that music that you you do that to like you know whether it's bro step or house or techno or drum and bass um and you know you have those enormous events right like from beyond wonderland to electric zoo to all those kind of things and that i mean it's fair play like absolutely fair play
0: uh, it, I mean, the, the, f- the fist problem thing is, is a great way of putting it because I mean, I've, there's a there's a story I often tell about going um, playing at Ultra and playing on one of the small stages, but then going up and watching David Guetta on the main stage, mm. and just being confronted by this like seemingly. Like, I don't know, I compared it over time to a kind of Nazi rally, which is maybe a little bit harsh, but but I mean, it genuinely, genuinely was reminiscent of that sort of thing, just the the pure kind of like uniformity of it, you
1: know? Absolutely. I remember going there, I went there with Boris Netsky, I think it was 2012, uh, and he'd been booked with Dynamite to do Electric Zoo, and I I was kind of managing Boris at the time, so I was like, yeah, look, I want to go because I want to see this kind of phenomenon. So we sort of, you know, we flew into New York. We, and we had a fantastic trip. You know, we were there for just a few days, had a couple of days off. But so going to the, um, the, I'm not sure if it is it Long Island. or It's one of the actual islands just within the kind of Manhattan area. But mm. so we drive over there and uh, and he was playing main stage, you know. and uh, he was, But he was playing maybe third on the bill. And, and I remember like turning up and getting onto the stage, side stage, And the booth was so near the front of the stage, but that was because behind Boris, every artist after him had their own LED wall. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was like, you know, you know, like those kind of Victorian puppet theatres. It was like all these kind of like layers of LED. And it was like, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous. And so that like, there was hardly anywhere for Dynamite, who was emceeing to kind of stand because (laughs) they were kind of squashed out front from all of these pyrotechnics. And this was like early afternoon. And you know, like we had fun and we had a little, little wander about, but I was, I was totally bewildered by it really. And I, you know, I still am. It's not, it's, not, it's not designed for me that, you know, that kind of fist bumping thing. And I guess what's interesting, you know, with, with a lot of that is it's, you know, we are all aware of the, uh, the very clear and obvious roots of dance music from the key cities in America, you know, Detroit and Chicago and New York, right? And we we know that going into the eighties, obviously. But as a country and even as cities, it never it never it never really established the club culture that we are familiar with in Europe. London, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, right? It 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 never really kind of had that as you got through into the nineties and the two thousands. Um, and it's kind of EDM for me is like really all about, okay, yeah, we like this, but we need to do it 100 times bigger than everyone else. And then it will be okay. So if we kind of take that tempo, but we just do it in an enormous fashion, it will be okay. And if you can all dress up as fluorescent giraffes and, you know, bananas, and you'll get it. Uh, you know, do you know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's sort of like bereft of the things that we kind of, we feel comfortable with and we take for granted and we've grown up being a part of. And it's just, there's this kind of weird kind of disconnect. And as a result, then I, you know, and, and I'm I'm no expert on like the current sort of clubbing landscape across America, but I, I, I get certain cities where obviously, you know, we have connections and events or, um, and, you know, you, and so you sort of see it in kind of patches, but it's still, I don't know, it's still a kind of an odd thing to me. Um, and I think so much of it
0: is just because of the sheer enormity of it and it's yeah I mean I think um, if I can just interrupt you to just to say that you know EDM as a thing I mean obviously the kind of ground zero for it was was the states it's obviously subsided a little bit now but uh, huge in sort of northern Europe like uh, the Netherlands for example Mm. like with Tomorrowland and all that kind of stuff yeah Which was imported over there, and has those many of those brands have have been successful in the states? But I just wanted to ask you the question about about production, because of so much, so many of those events, you know, like you said, like the kind of like multiple video walls and all all the rest of it. Like production is almost like the main thing Mm. in in many of those things, and then the music is just kind of like a you know not not an afterthought, but like you know it's definitely sometimes seems a little bit secondary so just with the hospitality events like how much do you think about production as a kind of well i mean to put it in a slightly distasteful way as a kind of selling point Hmm. of of the of the event you know like how much how much do you guys like put into it and and how, how do you think about
1: it yeah no it's a it's a good question when when we were doing brixton sort of what was like 2008 2009 2010 Where essentially, you know, it's one big room. It's an iconic room. And that was probably the first time, I think, that we really started to embrace production and we really started to think about it because we were duty-bound to do that. Because you can't just have a booth on that enormous stage at Brixton Academy and a couple of red lights. And we really got into that and we started working with production designers. You know, we we built this enormous, like literally enormous, like multiple-piece sort of wooden H logo with these huge screw in like light bulbs it was totally impractical but it was the best we could do at the time and you know we'd, so that, that then became a whole kind of thing and then we evolved that and then we started to get into like lighting design and LED and you know and a bit laterally a little bit of pyro not so much like I was never really into the sort of fire but I you know, I like a confetti cannon here and there, you know, just for, just for shits <laughs> and giggles. But so, yeah, I think I think Bristol was the first time. And also, of course, it's an indoor venue, right? So it lends itself to production. But I'd like to think it didn't... I'd like to think it didn't get in the way of the essential performance of what, what, what was kind of going on. Um, what's interesting, I guess, is once you start getting into outdoor events, then it becomes a whole other thing. Because... I mean look, you know, you can you you can lose your house just investing in production. Um, with the sheer cost and scale. Um so I think we've always we've always tried to find a good balance. Um but it's also kind of I think it's dependent on, you know, it's show to show because you know, at Finsbury Park, our stages were all in marquees inside because we didn't really have the confidence that the weather would hold. And, you know, so we had one one year, it was blistering sunshine, one year it pissed with rain, you know. So if you're working in marquees, you then, you know, you have certain restrictions around that. And, you know, you... But then, like, when we've been doing our beach festivals and you're literally outdoor and it's daytime, and then there's a whole other way of looking at it and different... And, you know, to an extent in Albania, um, relatively modest production because the setting is so phenomenally beautiful. <laughs> and so even, like, the... the that just the reality of doing what you're doing in that setting is just quite phenomenal in itself that's you know the, that's kind of half the reason you do it there so you know but it's an interesting question maybe not one that I think about that often but I think I think for our shows we try and you know we try and make it measured you don't want to undersell it you don't want to underproduce it but at the same time I don't want to get into that LED arms race because it's just crap you know I'm not like I'm not it's not it's not portable you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, for a one-off, maybe, you know, you want to, um, you know, you want to spend 40 grand on LED. Okay, fine. But um, that's not really the kind of way that I want to put our shows on because it's, it's untenable. You know, like, okay, you could probably work it out in the back of an envelope one way in which that will be profitable. But, um, I mean, the cliche is to say, obviously, is that it's all about the music, which um, it should be. But there needs to be a good balance, and you need to you need to feel confident that you're making it entertaining, safe, accessible, and exciting. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because as you were saying that, you know, I was reminded that you know we said at the top about how the audience for drum and bass is, is super young, and the cliche kind of analysis of what a young audience wants now is that. As we've talked about on the show before, is that you know, kids these days um, don't want stuff; they want experiences, and this mm. explains to an extent why this whole production thing has taken off as it as much as it has. But then the flip side of that is that you know, raving in a dark tent to drum and bass is is a good experience, you know. Sure. <laughs> so it doesn't,
1: yeah, yeah. Like you know, like we've like for instance, like you know, we've we've done a few shows at Tobacco Dock uh, in Wapping. You know, which is a which is a really lovely indoor space, quite an unusual kind of building. But one of the you know one of the best parts of that is what they. I mean, maybe it's the second room, but it's essentially just an underground car park. Yeah, that's a great room. I've played in that room a right? few times.
0: It's yeah, yep. and, and
1: relatively low low ceiling, super long. I mean, you don't put any production there because there's literally nowhere to put it. Yep. Like you know, and if you did put it, you know, you'd probably blind the DJs or something. So. That, that That's a great example of, like, the power of the experience is the music and the environment. It's not how much money did you blow on LED. <laughs> yeah, totally. That, that's a heartwarming experience rather than, you know, because I don't want to, like, there are certain companies that will always have an extra, a spare 100 grand to throw on, you know, fire and donuts and whatever the hell it is that they spend their money on, you know, and you and I know perfectly well that the phenomenon sometimes of just the music, and let's not forget, really, if, they, if we were going to spend money on something, we should be spending money on the sound. There are so there are so many, like, I mean, I don't know, may, maybe with some of these festivals, like, there's so much production because they're trying to, you know, distract you from the fact that the sound system's shit.
0: That is a good point. That's something I hadn't considered, but I'm sure that must be the case in some cases, yeah.
1: Whereas, like, you know, that there is nothing better than, you know, I don't want to bang on about it, but, like, for instance, like, when we were, when we were in Albania this, uh, this summer... The sound was, I mean, I actually had, for the first time, had a couple of DJs say, can we just turn it down a bit? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because there were no sound restrictions because of where we are, and it's like it's relatively uncharted territory out there. But, you know, we always work with Kim, who used to be sound engineer at Fabric, so our our sound out there is really, really crisp, very loud, super warm, lovely and deep. And so just that phenomenon of, like, 30-degree heat, looking at a mountain range by the ocean with an incredible sound system And basically, a big light that says hospitality, that's kind of it, actually. (laughs) That'll do me. That'll do me all day long. Because if you're actually there, you know how good it is. But then, of course, you know, something I also perhaps focused on is that everyone's looking for their Instagram moment. So, and I mean the DJs often. It's like, you know, they just want their Instagram moment. They want to stand in front of the crowd and, you know, everyone's got their arms up and there's fire breathing dragons and lasers (laughs) you're like yeah okay i mean um, guess that's your thing and that's what you do but um yeah it would be nice let's be honest it would be nice to sometimes think that it would be great to put on a sold out event in a warehouse with a system and a red light bulb yeah (laughs) right because actually that's what a lot of us grew up on that's kind of how we got into this you know we got into this in doing what's a great example plastic people you know uh a favorite of so many of us of a certain era where of course it was tiny but you didn't go for the production (laughs) you know you went for the experience and the experience was the basement the system
0: yeah, bloody enormous system in a tiny room. Absolutely, recently.
1: but also bloody enormous system in a tiny room with people that have gone for all exactly the same reasons and listening to artists that we all look up to and just having that experience. And that was absolutely what you went for. You didn't need anything else. And I, and, and I, I think it's important that we don't lose sight of that phenomenon, even if we are doing big shows. It's harder at big shows because there's more ways. You're under pressure to entertain people constantly. But yeah, I. I it's always changing you know it's always changing and part of, I think part of what we've learned as a promoter is that we need to keep we need to keep our fans genuinely interested so you, you keep you evolve your lineups you move locations you go to different venues you try to find unusual spaces you don't just take a residency in one club in one city for 10 years because those 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 days have passed you know I think and we have to keep working hard to evolve what we're doing so that you know our crowd and actually our artists you know stimulated and excited and challenged and curious you know otherwise you know if we're not careful everyone gets a bit complacent and everything goes a bit
0: flat yeah absolutely well that's a great place to finish i think thanks so much for doing this it's been been great
1: pleasure absolute pleasure yeah um, almost two hours have flown by <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was Chris Goss from Hospital Records, which, as I mentioned at the top, was a big inspiration to me starting Hot Flush. And he's a really interesting guy, and it was great to get so many detailed insights into the way their business runs, actually. Super interesting stuff. And really surprised to hear that, despite all the massive events that they do, that the recorded side of the business is still the biggest source of revenue for them. That really surprised me and I'm sure it surprised many of you listening to this. So um, yeah, thanks to Chris for that. Loved the conversation. And um, yeah, I forgot to mention at the top that we're late getting this podcast out this week. We're normally on Tuesday mornings and it's definitely Thursday today. But we'll be back on schedule next week, Tuesday morning, as usual. Got another great guest coming up then. So just before we go, a uh, quick note to say that we have a couple of releases this Friday. In fact, it's tomorrow. A couple of releases out tomorrow. First of all, Anna Cost's the follow-up to her last EP on Who Whom, our enigmatic offshoot techno thing label. Last one was called The Very End of You. Lots of people like that. It was the introduction to her for lots of people. She is a brand-new producer, pretty much. And her next EP, which is called Waste of Skin is out tomorrow. Check it on hotflush.bandcamp.com. It's awesome. Really kind of interesting side-eye take on techno and kind of electro-influenced techno. Really love that. And also Jason Winters on Rhythm Nation with a couple of remixes from James Welsh. That's really cool stuff too. More on a kind of classic house and techno, sort of US house and techno. His kind of take. Jason's from Birmingham, but uh, yeah, he's got a his own take on that kind of stuff. And as I said, a couple of remixes from James Welsh from Fantasy Sound. So, um, yeah, get involved with that. Also on hotflush.bandcamp.com and on all other music outlets wherever you get your music. So, yeah, this has been a great episode. Sorry that it's late. I won't be late next week, as I said. So before we go, leave us a review or a rating. Wherever you're listening to this, hit the five star button or leave a gushing review. Join us in the Discord to chat about anything, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord, and follow the Spotify playlist. Loads of drum and bass in there this week. Some classic high contrast and all that kind of stuff from Hospital. And also Landslide. We talked about Landslide in the conversation. He's just awesome. Not drum and bass. Well, see with some sort of drum and bassy type stuff, but just such an interesting producer. If you're not familiar with him, then I would highly recommend getting into Landslide. Anyway, we're done. I will see you... Next week, not at the same time, next Tuesday, Tuesday morning, for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you.
1: Let's go cool, wow.